This is the Commonwealth City Church Podcast. Thanks for listening. Commonwealth is a church in Lexington, Kentucky. For more info, visit our website at commonwealthcitychurch.com and follow us on Instagram at comcitychurch. We hope you enjoy the message. Of his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. For once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let's pray. Um, Lord, we just thank you so much for the truth in this text, uh, the truth that reminds us of our identity in the gospel, but also our responsibility um, to participate in the kingdom that you've established for us. And Lord, I pray today as we uh, take a few steps in this journey with what it means to recognize um, the mission that you've called us to be on, of how we partner evangelistically with you in the world, how we are good news gospel people. Lord, I pray that, that today be absent of any, uh, any kind of, of weird manipulation or motivation from me. Like, Lord, I, I don't want to see a room of people be motivated and compelled into a greater evangelistic approach because of some words on a stage. Uh, but Lord, we just pray that your spirit, who already indwells the hearts of all of us who believe, that you just pound on us from the inside what it means to walk faithfully and diligently with the greatest news the world has ever seen and to recognize the people you've put in our path, the people you've put in our life, the people you've put on our hearts, uh, that we might be people that, that can carry a message of redemption and reconciliation to you or w- with you and, and from you uh, to them. Lord, we pray that. We pray that your spirit preach a, a more profound second sermon that land on the hearts of all of us here. You give us eyes to see and ears to hear, you and you alone. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. And that was uh, Jesus agreeing, that little ding from the computer. <laughs> Jesus agreeing in prayer there, you know. Um, we are going to be spending a few weeks, these rest, this rest of the month, kind of understanding our, our responsibilities and what it means to walk evangelistically or, or, or talk about evangelism. Now, that's kind of a big churchy word that we don't use a lot here. You've probably not heard the word evangelism a ton from the stage here, um, which is maybe a, an apology coming with that. Like we should talk more about that. Really, these next few weeks are to compel us together towards a greater kingdom participation with what Jesus has already accomplished and with what he's working on from his finished work, what he's working to see happen in the lives of people and what he will see happen. This week, I was reminded that even as we approach the table, we don't just come and take communion. We'll do that at the end of our service. We don't just come and take communion and look backwards. We come and take communion with the anticipation of what he's still going to do and who he still is, both presently and in the future. And so these next few weeks, we're going to be talking about that. We're going to be talking about how we as, as kingdom participants walk in step with the Spirit, like Galatians chapter 5, to see a greater redemption happen um, in our world. God doesn't need your work to build his kingdom, but he wants to build his kingdom by his work through you. And we're going to be unpacking that for the next few weeks. In fact, the the word we're going to look at is is the word evangelism, or the Greek part of it is euangelion. Some of you guys may have seen this before. I don't expect there to be a ton of Greek scholars, um, but, but this kind of you can maybe see some similarities between these two words. There's an E, there's a U, but it's, we've made it a V as a transliteration. Uh, a, and it's kind of an NG, or the two things that look like Y's in the Greek 
looks kind of like evangelism. The W is upside down. The kids are like, that's a W, it's not an M. Okay, I get it. Maybe a mirror image. Um, Oftentimes in linguistics, our language is full of what's called translations. Okay, so translation is to take a word that's in one language and to create an entirely different word in our language. Some of you who maybe speak another language or familiar with another language sometimes see that. It's, It's a word that and, you know, let, let's use, um, let's, you know, for all of us that love to frequent, uh, the, you know, Mexican restaurants in our town, like let's use chicken or pollo, right? Like those words don't seem to line up at all. They're entirely different words. There's not even any similarity between that to translations. Does that make sense? Some words are transliterations, which means you took the literal word in its original language and you just gave it the characters or the letters of the language that it's being translated into. And then it carries its original meaning. We have some of those in our context, words like, um, words like baptism are, are that actually in the Bible. It's, it's the literal translation, the literal word is baptizo, and we just translate it into English, transliterate it into English, baptize or baptism. Evangelism is the same way. This word does not have a translation, it has a transliteration. And why is that important? Why are you giving us this linguistic background? Well, the reason I'm giving you that is because this word has maybe been adopted into our languages. When I hear the word evangelism, I think, oh, it's the practice of sharing my faith. Or I think, um, you know, it's some strategy that a church is supposed to have. You know, it's supposed to have evangelistic outreaches. Our church is supposed to do evangelism. Some of you might remember the context that, that or be aware of the context. Maybe it's your grandparents' churches where people used to knock on doors, door to door, and do evangelism. In fact, I'm pretty sure we have some testimonies in this church, maybe sitting down here on the front row, of people that have been affected by door-to-door evangelism so much so that it drastically and radically changed their life. So that's, that's a strategy that's happened. But I don't know what's in your mind with the word evangelism, but I want to tell you the original meaning of euangelium of what it really means. Anytime you see in your Bibles, G-O-S-P-E-L, the word gospel, the Greek word that underlines underlies the word gospel in every single one of your Bibles, 67 times in the New Testament, is the word euangelion, which is the word evangelism. And so evangelism literally means gospel, or if we were to translate gospel even farther, it means the good news of Jesus. It means the good news. So let's revisit 1 Peter chapter 2 with this understanding of what is the good news. I've got some words highlighted in red There's some good news all throughout this passage. You're a chosen race. That's good news. A royal priesthood. Good news. A holy nation. Good news. A people for his own possession. Good news. But you are now God's people. You once were not. That's good news. You have now received mercy. You once hadn't. That's good news. A few weeks ago, even on this stage, we had Elijah, who was just about to be baptized. Stand up here. I'm sorry, Isaiah or Elijah. He were here. Isaiah, stand up here to be baptized. And he read his testimony. And he said in his testimony all the good news of what it meant to put his faith and trust in Jesus. I'm sorry, buddy. Will you forgive me? Maybe. Thanks. (laughs) I'm sorry, Isaiah. Isaiah Summers. What it means to put his faith and trust in Jesus. Just this week, I was um, ran into an old friend uh, in the process of, of my wife and I are looking to buy a a new vehicle. Ran into an old friend. It's a car salesman in, in Frankfurt. And we hadn't seen each other since... Um, high school together. And I sat down with Mark. And as I'm sitting there with the purposes of looking over the specs and test driving a new vehicle, we sat there and we talked about how good the Lord is that this Sunday, in fact, I sent him a text 
before I, I came up here. This Sunday celebrates uh, a fifth anniversary of his sobriety um, and, and what it means for him to have trusted Jesus in, in all these steps along the way. And I sat there in the car dealership and got to hear testimonies of what good news really looks like. And the truth is, we could do that too. Whether it's preceding a baptism or buying a car or anything in between, we all, if we follow Jesus, should be aware of the good news of what it means to trust the Lord. And some of these we see, but some of these are lived out in other ways in our life. And all of them ultimately are lived out for us and from us so that we can do the underlying part of this verse, that we might proclaim the excellencies of all the good news he affords us uh, in the work of Jesus, that we might proclaim. You know, that first one that says a chosen race, it's interesting that we land on that this week. This weekend, as many of you know, um, we celebrate the legacy and the work for justice from Dr. Martin Luther King. And for many of us, we see a chosen race, and that may just be a, a verse that we're used to seeing. It kind of rolls off the tongue. But for some of us, we might see the phrase a chosen race and say, finally, finally, like the Lord sees me what my fellow brother and sister have not. And, and that lands kind of uh, close to my heart this week because of, of something that the Lord has, has invited me into, even in this city. Actually, a, a few years ago, it's, it's not ironic that I'm talking about this with Kelsey sitting in the back, but a few years ago, we were out here in the foyer of this church after a service, and Kelsey King came to me and said, I really feel like the Lord is going to give you a ministry of unity and reconciliation across um, you know, racial reconciliation and, and black and white lines, and that you're going to be an advocate for that in our city. And here we stand three years ago, two, three nights ago on Thursday night, I sat at a dinner um, with a, a leadership cohort in our city that's seven African-American leaders, seven Anglo leaders, about half of us are pastors, um, all of us are faith leaders in some capacity from, from university presidents and vice presidents to pastors of other churches in the city to people that work in nonprofit sector in our city. And we sat and had dinner together, not as some functional initiative, but as family. Um, as family for the, for the good of the gospel. Not just for the purposes of racial unity, but for the good of the gospel. And my dear brother, a man that I can now call a brother, and a man that I look at um, as an example of a faithful witness as a pastor, um, Dr. C.B. Akins, he stood up at our dinner. And he stood up and he said, my great hope for this group is that our creed matches our conduct. He said, now let me illustrate what I mean by that. He said, there's not an organization, there's not an educational institution, whether it's elementary school or PhD work. There's not a government agency and there's not a nonprofit or a church that doesn't hold to the creed of the value of diversity. But when it comes to conduct, there's also not many of those that have matched their creed with their conduct historically. And we sat there and we heard that message and we, we agreed to like be people that walk in conduct towards our creed, that we, des we desire to be family made in the image of God together. It doesn't matter what color our skin is, our background, our history, our ethnicity, any of those places, that we endeavor to walk as the family of God together. That was our creed. May it be our conduct. But I say today on this concept and this venue of evangelism, that when it comes to the work of the church, especially in evangelism, our creed rarely has matched our conduct. We haven't been people that have said, we're going to be about the business of displaying and declaring the gospel of Jesus 
with the same intensity that Christ himself did or that the early followers of Jesus did. And this good news falls always on deaf ears when it's not proclaimed. And so what does it mean for us to do what happens in 1 Peter here that says that we might proclaim that which we believe, that which has happened to us? You know, when it comes to the creed that we live in as followers of Jesus, there's still a lot of confusion around it. In fact, only 17% of church-going Christians can actually tell you the Great Commission. Now, don't worry, I'm not going to put anybody on the spot today. I'm not going to throw a mic into the audience and demand that somebody recite the Great Commission. For some of us in here, it's perhaps set to um, music from Grammy Pammy, and maybe we have a better memory of the Great Commission for some of us in here. Um, but 17% of, of churchgoers around the United States can actually tell you the Great Commission. If you're fuzzy on what it is, it's go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to practice everything that I've told you. This is words from Jesus. In fact, when it comes to evangelism, a recent study showed that nearly 90%, 9 out of 10, of active, church-going, born-again Christians have never shared their faith with someone outside their family. Only 20% of churches in the United States are growing, and of those 20%, only 1% are growing by actually reaching lost people. When we look back over the past year of our church, and I've said this in our staff meetings, our elders meetings, we've prayed about this. We have been so, we are so grateful to have seen the waters stirred here at this church. But predominantly, they have been stirred by growth from within. Young people that have been attending our church with their families that are saying yes to Jesus. And I don't want to take any glory of the Lord away from that. That is a beautiful transformation. In fact, you're going to hear me say it in a minute. Every conversion is a radical conversion. And I'll bring more understanding to that in a few moments. But we want to celebrate that as, as kids are born into our families and as the parents faithfully have presented the gospel and prayed and asked the Holy Spirit to do the work. We want to celebrate that. And so at no point do I want to ever diminish the work that the Holy Spirit's done in the lives of our families and the lives of our kids here in this church. It's a tremendous answer to prayer. But I want to add to the prayer and say, Lord, would you give us more adopted kids from outside? Would you give us people that maybe don't have a root or a foundation in the gospel of Jesus? Would you give us people that maybe don't have a family member that loves Jesus? And would you let our waters be stirred, not just with young men and women that are being raised and reared in the faith, but from people that are far, far away from it? Would you give us that in our midst? And what do we do to join you in that? So we have our work cut out for us, right? We do. But really, our testimony is that Jesus has the fulfillment and the completion of his work already done for us. So where do we begin? Where do we begin in this journey to let our conduct of evangelism, of sharing our faith, match our creed? Well, the first thing we do is we recognize lostness. We recognize lostness in the world. Don't we see it everywhere? Do we see it in your workplace? Do you see it in your school? Do you see it in your neighborhood? Do you see it on the news? Now, I've got a friend of mine that's in law enforcement, and he texts me regularly ways to be praying for him and like, I'm not going to lie, I don't know how he doesn't walk away jaded every single day. I don't know how he keeps his endurance and his perseverance with what he has to combat almost every single day. It's truly a thankless job. And, and I'm moved to pray for the lostness that he faces. A lot of times we see lostness in the world and we get irritated by it. We get mad when people make policies that we feel like, how did they arrive at that? 
when it comes to government or, or legislation. We get mad when people make decisions, maybe supervisors or how, how did, how did, I can't believe they're so prideful. I can't believe they're so greedy or I can't believe they're, they're, they're this or they're that. We get frustrated with losses. Our kids might get, might get bullied at school. You know, maybe there's, maybe there's a, a, an encounter of conflict or controversy that we face and we get irritated or frustrated with lostness. But Jesus, when he encountered lostness in the world, Frustration and annoyance are not the words that came with it, but rather compassion in Matthew chapter 9. It says that he looked on the crowds around him and he saw them with compassion because they were like sheep without a shepherd, restless and wandering away. Do we see the lostness in our world with compassion? Do we see lost people doing exactly what the Bible tells us we can expect lost people to do and that our posture shouldn't be one of annoyance or bitterness or frustration, but one of great compassion? In Luke chapter 19, we see another story of Jesus having taken compassion on someone that's lost. It's a famous sinner, a man named Zacchaeus. You may know the story. He climbed a tree to be able to see the message of Christ. And Christ, in the midst of all of this crowd of people, sees him where he is, sees him in his sin, and says, I'm coming to your house today. And the conclusion of that story... Luke, the gospel author, makes a summary statement about the ministry of Jesus, not just from Luke 19, but the entire ministry of Jesus. And it says, for the son of man came to seek and save that which was what? Lost. That which was lost. Jesus walks towards sinners. And when he does, they leave as saints. In fact, I think something we need to corporately repent from as the church of Jesus is we have too many transactional relationships with lost people. You know what Jesus was called? He was not called a, 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 a transformer of sinners, although he is that. He was called a friend of one. And for us, too, to be friends of people, for the greater understanding that we might be friends with them for a moment, that it might last a lifetime and an eternity even. Friends of sinners. What does it mean for Jesus to seek and save that which is lost. Can you recall a time in your life or what your life was like or what it would have become had he not befriended you with the gospel, with his good news? Can you recall that? In fact, I just want to take a moment, and this is kind of like a weird rhythm in a sermon, but I just want to take a moment and I want to invite you to just bow your head, bow your hearts, and to offer a gratitude towards the Lord that saw you, that befriended you, that, that he knew what your life was like and met you in it. Or he knew what your life would be like had he not befriended you maybe at an early age. Don't ever forget where God found you. And so let's just offer a prayer of gratitude. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that when you said you came to seek and save that which was lost, you meant me. You meant us. You meant every person in here. Lord, thank you for finding me. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for seeing me and saving me. And we just offer a deep gratitude. It's what you saved me from and what you saved us for. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Don't ever forget where God found you. Don't ever forget where he found you. I mentioned this earlier that this would be something I... I come back to, you know, sometimes we have a tendency in church life to kind of glorify the really um, kind of incredible testimonies of death to life, like the people that have really struggled with maybe a, a very apparent or very obvious sin and that transformation maybe later in life. 
I would argue to you that there's no greater testimony than being able to say, as long as I can physically remember, I have been found in faithfulness with Jesus. Like I have walked with Jesus. And we hope that. We've actually talked about that, celebrating these relationships with Christ, these baptisms that happen um, to kids at a, at a younger age. And that gives us, that leaves us to, to a, a, a truth. My dad actually gave me one day, I was, I was describing someone's testimony and I said, it was really a radical conversion. And my father, who's a pastor, interrupted me and he said, son, every conversion is a radical conversion. That's true of you too. All of us have a radical conversion because of the work of Jesus. So we recognize lostness. That's kind of our first step. The second one is we embrace gospel formation. We embrace gospel formation. How was your life not just saved by the grace of God? How has it been formed by the good news of Jesus and the grace of God? When it comes to formation, there's a verse that sticks out. All, a lot of us have heard it. Kurt even, even talks this morning about what it means to be conformed into the image of the Son. That's in Romans chapter 8. It's also in Romans chapter 12. And I'm going to read for you this one about conformity to Christ. This is, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. Have you heard that phrase before? Don't be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world will be transformed. Well, on this subject of formation, we at staff meeting this week ran across a video uh, talking about gospel formation and the framework for gospel formation from a guy named John Tyson who pastors a church in New York City. And uh, we just want to invite you to, to watch this um, this morning as, as a little snippet. Simple. We're called to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so that's like a holistic vision that every part of our life, physically, spiritually, mentally, and emotionally, is learning to love God rightly and then order all of the capitals of our life around that, that primary pursuit. So the vision of it's simple. Jesus laid it out to love God and to love our neighbour. Um, when Paul's talking to the Romans, uh, Romans chapter 12, that verse, everybody talks about, don't be conformed to the image of the world. We go, yeah, yeah, yeah. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Okay, so... I think we need to spend more time asking the question, what did, in order for Paul to make Romans into Christians, he had to understand how Rome made people into Romans. Hmm. So what was cultural formation that Rome used that he calls the patterns of this world or the mold? Eugene Peterson's Be Conformed to the World's Mold. And so basically they used a sort of like myth, story. They used history. They used religion in the way they did that. They did shared cultural practices. So there was this whole way of living in society, ethics, story, sources of authority, uh, entertainment, the way theater and the arts were all used. And they basically had a narrative they pushed through all of these cultural mechanisms and stories that made whoever happened to come into the Roman Empire Roman. And so Paul's starting point is identify the ways the Romans are being made into Romans. Mm. So then you can ask the question, how does a Roman turn into a Christian, a follower of Jesus primarily? And so um, I, I think we need to ask that question, which is basically the starting point is like, in what way is America making Americans American? Mm. Yeah. And then in what way is Jesus making Americans Christian? And so to have a lot of like nuanced thought around those things, how was America forming our heart, soul, mind and strength and vision of our neighbour? And then what ways has that filled our thinking and our affections and our understanding and our habits and our practices? And, our, and then to start saying, how do I bring the teachings of Jesus to bear on these things? So, you know, practically, 
um, logically, sequentially, emotionally, dealing with healing, dealing with our past. So to me, it's identifying the one part, the from, and then the two who we're being made into. And so there would be a whole plethora of, of things that you would do to do that. But to me, that's the most important way of... We flew in a walk with a greater evangelistic um, intentionality. I think it starts by us recognizing how we're formed. Um, are you haphazardly formed as an American? Think about it. No, you're not haphazardly formed as an American. We, we know the creeds and the history of our nation at an early age, don't we? Like we know the song, we know the repeat after me, we know the pledge. Uh, we know everything that comes with it. And I'm not saying this to demean or, or demote um, how the Lord has used this country and what a blessing it is to live here. But what I am saying is the gospel doesn't just say, okay, you're now an American turned Christian. The gospel says you're actually a citizen of heaven here on earth and invites us to be formed in a different way than we have previously been formed. It doesn't mean that we have to rebuke what it means to be a, a, a citizen of this country, but it means we must embrace what it means to be formed by the power of the gospel at work in us. So what does that look like? What would be our pledge and our anthem as a follower of Jesus? What would be the history that we're aware of, both our personal history and the history that we would call the word of God? Like, what are we aware of when it comes to how the gospel has worked throughout time? Not just the time of our life, but all of time. What does it mean for us to be formed in the way of Jesus? If we're going to know how we're going to be formed in Christ, we have to be unformed from the world that has already spent all of its days forming us. What does it mean to embrace that? That's our second step in our, in our pathway towards maybe a greater evangelistic um, intentionality. And formed for what? We're formed for what? We're formed for mission. And so the last one is that we are empowered by the Spirit and we are sent on mission. If you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 4. I didn't put this on, on the slide on the screen, so you're just going to have to look on your phones or in the Word. Acts chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. First of all, Acts chapter 4, if you've not read this chapter of the Bible before, just want to give you a little aside. This is an awesome chapter of the word of God, just in, in general. I mean, I, I don't, I hate to act like there's any that aren't awesome because they're all awesome. Um, but, but this is like one that I regularly find myself going to. To give you, set the stage a little bit of what's going on, Peter and John have, have healed a man um, that's been paralyzed for years. And they asked him for money and he said, I don't have silver and I don't have gold, but I'll give you what I do have. In the name of Jesus, stand up and walk. And when he stands up and walks, he kind of goes a little crazy. He gets a little celebratory, and he, he kind of makes a mess of the whole situation. So much so that Peter and the boys are brought before the council there in Jerusalem, and they're confronted with um, some rebuke and some uh, correction that they shouldn't be living out this boldly. They shouldn't be living out their understanding of the Christ, the G this Jesus, so boldly. And so we get to Acts chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, and Peter the apostle says back in his rebuke or his rebuttal to their punishment or correction of him. He says, there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we may be saved. So he didn't leave Jesus to be uh, just a, a, a neutral part of the equation. And then in verse 13, it says, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. 
And then if you underline anything in your Bibles, this will be a good one to underline. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Now, we've done a little language lesson already today, but I'm going to offer you into another one. It's not going to be on the screen, but I'm just going to, you have to trust me or go into your Greek lexicon on your own. Um, when it says they perceived that they were uneducated, that's the word agramatos. Okay? So you might have heard the word gramatos. It might be familiar with a word we use, grammar, right? So they were not men of good grammar. They literally slayed the king's English. They were not good with the words. And then the second, I'll see if you can figure this one out. The second, our translation says that they were common men or uneducated men. But the Greek word is idiotos. Do <laughs> you know what that one is? Does it take a scholar to figure that one out? The, the, Luke, the author of Acts, says that when the Jewish council perceived that these were uneducated, senseless idiots... So he says, they were astonished. Why were they astonished? Because it's clear that they had spent time with Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, and I'm not one for a whole lot of formulas in the Bible, but there seems to be one here that's hard to ignore. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter, they recognized they spent time with Jesus. Do you want greater evangelistic boldness in your life? Spend more time with Jesus. You want greater evangelistic witness? Spend more time with Jesus. I don't know what that looks like for you. I don't know your life. I don't know your rhythms, but I know mine. I know over the past few months, I have been convicted that like, if you were to ask my family, what's the thing I talk about the most, that Jesus wouldn't always be number one. If you were to ask my girls, I'm usually talking about the schedule of our week. I'm talking about the things that we have to, to do. I'm talking about the practices we need to go to and get to on time. I'm talking about the meetings that I have. I'm talking about the stuff that's on my to-do list. And listen, none of those things are innately sinful. You know, being on time to upward basketball practice is not sinful, right? But if you were to ask them, fill in the blanks, what, what are the things that come from Andrew's lips? I don't know that they would say a fluency in the gospel leads the way. And if I'm sitting there thinking, how can I be more purposeful, more intentional, more confident, and more bold in the gospel of Jesus, there seems to be a direct correlation that pairs. We are given confidence and boldness and greater intentionality in our gospel witness when we have spent more time with Jesus. And as I look at my life, I think I'm tempted to say, Andrew, talk about Jesus more. And I think the Holy Spirit says, Andrew, spend more time with me. If you spend more time with me, you'll talk about me more. You'll see it come out more. You'll, you'll be the model of personal evangelism to your wife and your daughters. Not just because you're the preacher in the family, but because you're the follower of Christ in the family too. A follower of Christ in the family too, just like they are. You want to grow in greater boldness, spend more time with Jesus. And then we recognize, too, that we are sent just like Jesus. You know, I mentioned at the beginning, I don't know what comes to your mind when you think of evangelism, if you think of like different events or outreach things, but here's what I want to remind you of. That when it came to the work of redemption from heaven itself, God did not send an event. He sent a person. And when it comes to reaching your friends and your family members, it is not likely that he's going to send you an event to reach them. He's going to send you to reach them. He's going to send you to reach him. You that spent time with him. You that's 
that's filled with boldness and confidence. You that now can carry the, the declaration of who he is and what he desires to do. It's likely that in the same way he sent a person to save your life, he might send you to introduce them to that person that, saved, that might save their life as well. There are tons of biblical reasons to evangelize. Tons. There's obedience. There's that we model what Jesus modeled. There's the we're commissioned to do so, literally from the Great Commission. We even put the word great in front of it. A great commission to do so. But for me, the greatest motivator to be a person of evangelism is that it rightly displays the character of our God. That's the greatest motivator, is that evangelism carry, displays the character of our God. Probably the most formative book that's not the Bible in my life um, is a book by a guy named Tim Keller, and it's called Prodigal God. If you've never read it, uh, I encourage you to read it. It's probably like 10 or 12 bucks on Amazon. You know, do an audible credit. It might be at your library. I'm not sure. There's probably even like a YouTube version of it. You know, donate money to Tim Keller if you appreciate his ministry, whatever. You know, like Prodigal God, and it's the story of Luke 15, the prodigal son, if you're familiar with the passage. Um, in fact, it's kind of a, a, a bit of a twist, and, and so much so that I can never read that passage the same again. He, his whole argument is that there's not just one lost son, but there's two. There's two lost brothers. There's the one that takes his inheritance and squanders it, and then there's the one that's lost, mired in his self-righteousness, and that both are in need to know dad. Both are in need to know the right dad. And I, I think about that. I think about what it means to be as a kid. You remember, like, as a kid, um, I don't know if, if you all did this or not, but I remember when I was in, like, second or third grade, I was, like, so convinced I could take on the world because my dad had my back. You know, my dad can beat up your dad. You know, like, I don't know if you talked about that at the, at the playground or stuff. Like, my dad can beat up your dad. And, like, my dad's, like, 6'4", 300 pounds. Like, he'll beat you up. You know, like, he, what, big teddy bear wouldn't harm a fly. But... You know, that's kind of like what, what I'm led to believe. And, and the truth is that every single one of us that follow Jesus carry the testimony of my dad's got my back. And he doesn't just have my back. He has every part of my story. I've been in numerous conversations, sat down with numerous people that have told me all the reasons that they don't think Jesus could save them. All the reasons they're deconstructing their faith. All the reasons that they've suffered too much. They've sinned too much. There's been too much tragedy. There's been too much doubt. I've heard all the reasons. And every single time I hear it, in the back of my mind, I hear the Holy Spirit say, I just wish they could meet dad. If they could just meet the same dad that we know, all of their life would be different. And for me, when it comes to the greatest motivator of evangelism, it's that when I interact with people in the world that don't have a relationship with Jesus, my heart cries out, I wish they could know my dad. I wish they could know that he always has a spot for me on his lap. I wish they could know for me that he always comforts me. I wish they could know to me that he sees my heart. He doesn't see my sin. I wish they could know that when he forgives sin, he never brings it up again. I wish they could know that he redeems. I wish they could know that he saves. I wish they could know who he is. I wish they could know that there's room for them. I wish they could meet dad. And there's a part of our faith that's come and see, right? That's why we're here today. We come and see the worship of our king. But there's part of our faith that's also go and tell the good news of who our dad is. So we want you to recognize that you're commissioned to be people that are going to go and tell people. We want you to feel cheered on and prayed for as you take steps together with us, all of us, with me, 
to maybe take steps into greater evangelistic uh, intentionality. We, we want you to feel equipped, but we also know that we all lack in those areas. We all do. How encouraged do you feel to share your faith? How equipped do you feel to do it? On a scale of one to 10, is everybody knocking out 10s? I bet not. I bet most of us feel pretty ill-equipped. And so our confession is and our hopeful repentance is that this year, our prayer for evangelism is we want to take greater steps that you feel encouraged in what it means to be the witness God's made you to be and you feel equipped. Some of that will be corporate understanding. Some of that will be one-on-one conversations or conversations in our family groups. But we want to pledge a greater equipment to you to share your faith. And while we want to partner with you in that, While we want to join you and be accountable in that, I also want you to know that we're praying that God give you a vision for how you to participate as an individual, maybe as a family, as a small group of people in his plan to redeem all things. I'm praying that for your family. I'm also praying it for my family. I'm going to close with this quote. It's from a French poet. Um, I mixed up Isaiah's name. I probably got no chance with this one. Um, (laughs) I'm going to give my best shot. Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, I think. Puree. <laughs> okay. If you, if you, Exupéry. That's what it is. Exupéry. Okay. If you're French in the room and can pronounce that better, my apologies. But the quote says this. If you want to convince men to build ships, don't pass out shipbuilding manuals. Don't organize them into labor groups and hand out free wood. Teach them to yearn for the vast an endless sea. And the same is true of our gospel efforts to participate in the kingdom of God. Our issue is not that we have yet to find an adequate strategy to reach the ends of the earth. Our issue is perhaps that we don't yearn to see lost people saved and God's glory spread all over the earth bad enough to build whatever ships are necessary to get there, both figuratively and physically. We lack the vision of the vastness of God's promise when it comes to evangelism, to see the whole world saturated, covered by the knowledge of the glory of God like waters cover the seas. And so we hope in these next few weeks that we talk about evangelism, that you don't feel motivated because we've handed you the manual. Sure, we're going to talk about some models. Sure, we're going to talk about some ways to do that. But we want you to feel motivated because you see the vastless, endless adventure of the seas in front of you and how you have a captain that calms those waters, that knows the way, and that would love to see you navigate the very purpose and the very plan for redemption that he has for all of us. Well, how's it start? It starts with prayer. It starts with prayer. We, we had for a little while sitting, was it right down here, Brady? Our prayer station for salvation? Right over here for the last month. We were putting names on sheets of paper and hanging them up and saying, we want to commit to pray for people that they might come to know Christ. Okay, I'm not asking you to put a sheet of paper on a, on a clothing line in, or, you know, in your house, but I am saying it starts with prayer. Who would be the person that you would pray come to the knowledge of Christ? I pray that we get more stories of redemption and reconciliation. The other night I was at Excite Night to cheer on UK gymnastics. My girls and a couple friends, and I got to sit beside... Um, Trip Corum, who works for FCA, we just happened to be in the same section. He sat down with his family right beside me, weren't planned. And the whole night, I've got both an eye on the events and the scores. Kentucky won, beat LSU, woohoo. I'm watching that, but I'm also hearing story after story after story of God using the faithful witness of athletes 
and leaders in FCA seeing redemption happen to athletes on our campus here. And like the most exciting part of Excite Night were not, was not UK's win. It was the fact that there were gymnasts out there bouncing around that now walk with Jesus for eternity because they've been redeemed and they're part of God's family. And Tripp's like telling me all these stories. And I'm like, this is so awesome. You know, like just taking it all I pray that he gives us more stories. And I pray that he gives us a greater conviction for what it means for us to be purposed and deliberate and intentional in sharing our faith. A couple years ago, uh, the Southern Baptist Convention started a, a, a kind of a, a project called Who's Your One? It started out of a church in Raleigh, North Carolina um, called the Summit Church and a pastor, J.D. Greer. She said, who's your one? In the year that they started the Summit Church, I think the, the church is a couple thousand people, but the year that they started the Who's Your One program, they saw over 700 people come to faith in Christ. They didn't quite get everybody one for one, but a greater intentional influence in that city um, to see people come to faith in Jesus. Who's your one? And so if we were to ask you, who's your one? Maybe it's you personally, maybe it's you and your wife or you and your husband or you and your family have a, a unified one, but who's the one that God's put on your heart that you might pray for, that you might long for more stories with, that you might operate with a greater conviction? Who's your one? We don't have to announce it from the stage, but I would invite you to invite I would ask you to invite a few people into praying for that with you, maybe in your family group, maybe one of your leaders or one of your friends or one of your family members to just be praying that with you. Who's your one that the Lord might start with you and what it means to participate in his kingdom? We could go on and on and on. If, I'm, if we do, there's not going to be a part two and three, okay? So we're just going to have to end it here at part one. But I just want to invite you today as we take all this in um, to really like open your eyes, open your heart, open your mind. So what vision would the Lord give you to live a little bit more evangelistically intentional? This week, this month, this year, what would he do for you in that? When you come to this table, come, take, eat, and remember, but also go and tell so that others might come, take, eat, and remember with you next time. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much for today. We thank you for the truth of your word. Um, we thank you just for your gospel motivation to see us be people that are about kingdom business um, for the expansion of your glory. Lord, we, we pray that you remind us of where you've saved us from. Uh, we pray that you uh, remind us of, of where you've seen us and, and, and saved us. But Lord, we also pray that you just give us a greater uh, conviction, that you compel us even more, even more fully uh, to be people that go and tell, to give us boldness. Lord, give us a, a boldness because it's the fueled by us spending more intentional time with you. Give us a greater heart for devotion. Um, Lord, we pray that as we come, take and eat and remember that you uh, remind us of all you've done for us. But Lord, we pray that as we take, eat and remember that you put on our hearts, people, situations, families, places that we can go and tell. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen.